Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Lord, thank you for David, man after your heart, and for all the songs that he wrote. These psalms, Lord, that minister to us in ways that uh, we're just so grateful. Thank you for Psalm 51. And Lord, thank you for saving David and being merciful to him. And Lord, thank you for being merciful to us through the Lord Jesus. Lord, we have mercy. We have tasted mercy that we do not deserve in the least. And Lord, thank you for all of your goodness in this word. We pray now that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, to behold wonderful things from this truth. God, please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We all want to be successful, right? Right? I'm here to preach it. We're here to succeed, right? We're here to wealth and prosperity. Never mind. Okay, now, you know what? This world and what this world deems as success, and if you were to kind of peruse the articles and the online sidebars of all the promises being made, if you buy this DVD, you'll get rich quick. If you If you link here, you'll somehow be able to work from home and make $95 an hour and do very little. Or the other promises that you could lose 45 pounds in three weeks and keep it off. And there's all these schemes, all these ideas, and really at the heart of all of those schemes and ideas is this this model of success, right? It's this idea that the world carries and conceives of, this, this idea of what success really is all about. Success is about being healthier. It's about being wealthier. It's about being more fit, more slim, right? It's about working from home and doing very little and making a lot of money. It's, it's about things that when we come to Psalm 51 and what the Lord's mode of success really is, it, it's a major contrast. And I, I pray that by God's grace, we will come to see and understand that the, the mode, that the path that Jesus gives to us in the Scriptures, this idea that Psalm 51 will drive home for us, the repenting life, really is the path to success. Or in other words, it is the way of joy. If we desire joy, the Scripture is going to lead us to repentance. If we desire a fuller life, if we desire the life that Christ promises to those who follow him, we will be led by the scriptures to repentance. So the world may not like the idea. They might break out in rashes when we talk about the idea of repentance. It may seem to them an ugly word. It may even for some of us this morning seem to you either an archaic or an unhelpful or a depressing word to repent, repentance. This concept of of turning from things, turning to the Lord, of of giving those things up so that we obtain Christ, of of turning in our minds, having a change of mind, of heart, of will, of affection, and turning towards the Lord. It's that idea of repentance so often comes across with sackcloth and ashes and and some dismal things, but I, I do pray that by God's grace, Psalm 51 will change our hearts. That the Lord would renew our minds and show us this really is the path to joy. So let's turn in Scripture. Let's read together Psalm 51. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out all my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach, wis- you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, a brief description of the setting of this psalm would be quite important. As we know of the story found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, it's actually noted here, if you look at the, almost the prologue to this psalm, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Well, that prologue gives us an idea very clearly of what's going on here. If you remember in, in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, you remember the story, right? David, being on a rooftop, sees Bathsheba, Rather than being on the battle of the field of battle with his troops, he sees Bathsheba and he commits sin with her. And in so doing, he tries to cover it up by having her husband killed on the field of battle. Basically pushes Uriah into a place where he will die on the battlefield. So it's basically murder. David arranges for his death and he dies. And in, in the midst of all this, In the midst of all this, Nathan the prophet is sent by God. Nathan comes to David, confronts him, and David is cut to the quick. He's cut to the heart, and he opens his heart before the Lord. And what comes out? What song, what lyrics would come out of that experience? Right here. Psalm 51. Out comes these wonderful, beautiful, gospel-rich lyrics about the forgiving mercy of God. And today, really, the 
the, the joy of looking at this passage is to talk about the title of this message is The Repenting Life. We're going to be looking at the repenting life. And in this passage, there are, there, here's a theme, and this is my theme. There is mercy for our pardon. So pursue repentance forth to joy. There is mercy for our pardon. So pursue repentance forth to joy. And three points to look at, drawn from the passage, verses 1 through 6, know your sin. Verses 7 through 12, be assured of pardon. And verses 13 through 19, walk in joy. So let us look at our sin. I know this will be not the most exciting thing to consider, but let's be honest, it is critical. It is of vast importance that we know our sin. That we understand our sin nature. That we understand what makes me do what I do. What makes me say what I say. What makes me think the thoughts that I have that are clearly wicked. What makes me desire the things that I want. What makes me angry or anxious or fill in the blank. It's important that we know and understand our sin. Now David is writing here, Psalm 51, is is a type of lament. Right? It's a kind of crying out one's heart before the Lord, complaining before the Lord. And in this case, he's not complaining about enemies, as we heard from Steve's psalm last week, Psalm 62, where where David cries out, How long will my enemies attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? And neither is David crying out about his circumstances, the troubled times he might be in, like you find in Psalm 77, where he says, I cry aloud to the God. And he will hear me in the day of my trouble. He will deliver me. Now this lament is over himself. David is lamenting. He is weeping before God. Not about his enemies. Not about his circumstances. No, about his own heart. And he's providing for us a compelling, clear example of how and really what the gospel has to activate in us. We too must know our sin. And lament over it. And there is some wonderful descriptions, very clear, helpful description that David gets into to talk about our sin. He uses the word transgression. He uses the word iniquity. He uses the word sin. You can see there just a a bunch of words that will help kind of understand, unpack what transgression, iniquity, and sin mean. For instance, transgression is willful, self-assertive defiance of God, acts of rebellion, These are very descriptive, clear statements about the rebellious nature that's inside of our hearts that David is diving into in these verses. In particular, verse 4, we're going to learn a couple things, three things to be exact in verses 4 through 6 about sin, about these words, transgression, iniquity, and sin, which are all synonyms of sin. So the first thing we learn in verse 4, if you turn there, look there, Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned, says David. Against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. So first we learn that sin is personal. It's against a personal God. Only God. It's almost as though David is saying it doesn't matter what happens to other people around me. What matters primarily, Lord, is it's against you. It's against you only, God, have I sinned. 
It's not as though he's ignoring or denying the fact that he ended up murdering a man, Uriah, or that he has defiled a woman and ended up taking advantage of her and murdering her husband and making her a widow. And more than that, sinning against the entire nation of Israel, using the kingship that he had for a selfish purpose, his sinful desires. Certainly sinned against a multitude of people. But David is cut to the quick in such a way that he understands the nature of our sinfulness is primarily played out before God. Before you, Lord, you only have I sinned. And he says even further, he has in the second part of verse 4 of the first half, of it says, and done what is evil in your sight. In other words, before your eyes, God, Before your eyes, this all played out. What I have done, Lord, my heart, my desires, my sinfulness, firstly and foremost, it's played out before you, God. Your eyes are the eyes that matter. You fill up the entire front row, oh God. You're watching. Your eyes are what matter most. So David cries out and we see that sin is first personal before a personal and holy God with whom you and I have to deal with. You and I have a personal God. He is a God who relates personally with us and treats us with personal care, personal providence, and one day with personal judgment. And that is certainly in sight in these verses. Fearful thought, personal judgment. So sin is first personal, you see in verse 4. Sin is also, secondly, indwelling and natural. It comes natural. It's within us. And we see this, verses 5 and 6, where David says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, to be clear, David is not saying in verse 5 that somehow his mother committed sin and now has a baby. No, that's not what he's saying. What he is simply saying is that even at my conception, I was born a sinner. Within my very DNA, I am a sinful fallen being. So for each of us, indelibly, we are marked as sinners from our conception. And that is a humbling, sobering reality we have to face. And that explains everything, doesn't it? It explains the whole course of human history. Why is there death? Why is there murder, thievery? Why is there distortion of truth? And why are there lies? It's because of the fact that each of us was conceived in iniquity. All of us because of Adam's fall. And Romans plays this out very clearly for us. Because of Adam's fall, every one of us, every single one of us, has been forever cursed with the nature of sin, as long as we are on this earth, in these fallen flesh, in this body. Till death do us part, (laughs) praise God, till death do us part where the Lord Jesus returns, we will remain sinful to the core because of Adam. Because of Adam. So sin is indwelling, and it's also natural. And that explains, again, everything that comes out of my mouth. Everything that that, that comes out of my mind, all the concoctions that I have, all the lusts and desires, all the evil things I think about and want to pursue, it's because I'm natural born as a sinner. So we don't do what we do because of primarily evil influence outside of us, right? 
not that I hang around bad friends that I do bad things, although certainly bad friends aren't helpful. <laughs> They're going to tease out of me the very bad things that are already in there. And it's not as though bad circumstances create bad stuff in my heart. As though if I'm up against a rock or a hard place that, that somehow I've got to respond rashly or sinfully because of my circumstance. No. no. David is making very clear it is natural that I should sin because I am a born sinner. Born sinner. It's within me and out it comes. And we see the positive of that in verse 6 where David declares, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. God is saying there in the positive way that it's within the, the innermost part of who we are. It's that soul, that's that heart within us, that out of us should come wisdom. Out of us should come truth in the innermost parts. However, because of sin, it is not the case. So sin is indwelling, it's natural, sin is personal. And then in the second half of verse 4, sin deserves judgment. These are critical things to understand from David's teaching here. These lyrics of David. Second of verse 4 says this. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When we think about sin or our sinfulness, we must conclude as David does. Or we will fall short, completely short. We must conclude that God is just to punish it. That God is holy and full of truth. And that he will be justified if for a moment in time he should break out in sudden and furious wrath upon a sinner. We must declare, as David does, Lord, you are within your right to kill me. You are within your right to destroy any human that you choose because of their sin. In wrath. And as harsh or as insensitive as that feels... David is telling us something important about the nature of sin. It deserves God's full punishment. Because God is holy. Because God is righteous. He cannot and will not abide sin. And this points us all the more to our need for a Savior. So we must say no. (laughs) We must say no to the idea that somehow man is not as sinful as we might, might have thought previously. Or what the world would depict as a bad or a good person. We must say no to those things. We must agree with the scripture. In fact, we're going to say with Paul, Romans 3, 4. Let God be found true even if everyone else is a liar. I mean, that's what we're going to say. That's what our hearts want to say. Amen. We want to say it. Lord, let you be found true even if everyone else is a liar. You're true. Glory to your holy name. That is our heart, Christian, isn't it? That's what we long to say. And that's only because of the truth of God by His Spirit dwelling in us that we agree with God's judgment of sin. Now maybe you're here and you don't agree with God's judgment of sin. Maybe you've not thought about your sinfulness in the way that David's depicting it. Maybe you've never repented of sin. Maybe you've never even thought the idea of repenting or asking for God's forgiveness in the way that we see beautifully played out by David. And I I would want to appeal to you, if you've never repented of sin, or maybe you've repented long ago, and the idea of repentance is, is as long ago as you can remember, the idea of repenting or doing repentance, I would call to you and appeal to you, God, by His kindness, draws sinners to repent. 
If you desire to stand within the kind mercies of God, we must be living the repenting life. A life that repents. Ongoing repentance. If we desire to know the kindness and the love and the mercy of God like never before, if we desire those things, we must be walking out the repenting life. And if you are here this morning, you're not a Christian, and your lack of repentance would show that your heart is alienated from this holy God. And one day, personal judgment, I promise you, if you do not repent, God's personal judgment will come to your head. And I appeal to you, friend, I appeal to you that you today repent of your sins, that you confess with David, Lord, I have known my sin, it's ever before me. And without you, I am sunk. Would you repent today? And would you put your hope in the Savior that God gives to us? There is one way, there is one way that God provides. It is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I appeal to you that you would take hold. God holds it out to you. Take hold of this gospel. The good news of your salvation. Your sins blotted out, forgiven by a personal and holy God so that one day personal judgment will not fall on your head. I pray for that for you. So today might be the day that you would too repent. And I, for believers here, I, I've come to believe, honestly, and I'm seeing more in my own life, that I, the source of so much of our grief, the source of so much of our lack of joy and satisfaction in Jesus alone comes back to the lack of repentance. We're not repenting. And if we're not living out this repenting life that, that David's depicting for us, ongoing, turning back to the Lord, turning away from things that we're so prone to wander towards. We sang about it. Prone to leave the God I love. So much of our lack of joy and the grief that we have to bear is because we have had slight thoughts of sin. And we have thought to squint past our sin to somehow see better things. You're going to, you're going to obscure the lens of the gospel if you squint past your sin. We cannot somehow squeeze our eyes and hope that, you know what, it, I mean, you, ever, you ever do this? Like you, you don't want to see something, you kind of squint, and it becomes like this blurry shape so you can kind of see it, but you really don't. Well, that's what we do if we're not repenting. We're squinting past it. And we're not going to have the full light and the joy of the gospel if we are squinting. So I would, I would call you to repent. Now, these verses have an intended effect. David is a masterful songwriter. He knows exactly what he's doing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These verses deliver us to a crossroads because if we read through these verses, 1 through 6, of all the descriptions of our sinfulness, and we're understanding, like David is saying, that God is justified in his words so that when he passes judgment, he is fully righteous and found true, we're at a crossroads. And something has to give, right? Something has to give. Man the sinner, crossroads with God the holy, with God the righteous. Something has to give. And that's precisely where David takes us. So we're going to look at being assured of pardon. Verses 7 through 12, being assured of pardon. 
Now, children can be quite audacious, can't they? Adults can too, but children have a habit, of, particularly in, ver- I think, ages three to five, is like the, the, the epic moments in a, in a child's life of being really audacious in their questions and requests, right? You know what I'm talking about. If you ever have a conversation with a three-year-old and some of the things they end up saying or, or, or things that they're asking for, the other day, my four-year-old, we had a couple, actually Donovan and Heather Drew came over for hospitality, and we had a wonderful time. But at the very beginning of our time together, my four-year-old looks at them, and I understand why he says it. I'm going to set up a little context here. It was right after Christmas, so I understand that, he, that we, they've been getting a lot of presents, and every time someone walks through the door, it's either Grammy with a present or Uncle with a present or me with a present. So Donovan and Heather walk in the door, and Jesse says, did you bring us any presents? And bless his heart, he's just being honest. He wants a present, and they didn't bring him one. So he's really upset about the whole thing, you know? No, he wasn't. He was fine. It was just one of those moments that make a parent wince. Like, did he just say that? And fortunately, you know, Donovan and Heather, they're their most gracious. Oh, they're so gracious. They just laughed. We all laughed. It was a funny moment. Uh, so I'm grateful for their, their grace. But we all know that children certainly can be audacious in their requests. And, you know, adults can too. And there's examples that Mark Twain uh, who's uh, Samuel Clemens, you know, famous novelist from the 19th century. Uh, he wrote Huckleberry Finn and, among other things, Tom Sawyer. But he received letters, and some of his letters are hilarious from fans or people who were hoping to get something from him. So here's some audacious requests that he received. Two small letters. Here's the first letter. Mr. Clemens, gracious sir, you are rich. To lose $10 would not make you miserable. I am poor. To gain $10 would not make me miserable. Please send me $10. Very respectfully yours, Ola A. Smith. Dear Ola. Wow. Second letter. Mr. Clemens, dear sir, what will you charge to write me a lecture? One that will take about one and a quarter hours to deliver it. Humorous and stirring, but not too pathetic. An early answer will very much oblige. Yours respectfully, R.T. Lowerly. Now, these certainly are audacious requests of a famous novelist. And it's the comments that uh, Mark Twain, I'm not going to tell you, he wrote in the margins some pretty uh, colorful statements. Uh, But uh, you can see, I mean, these are pretty audacious. But yet, looking, transitioning here to Psalm 51, what we're about to see and what we've already seen to some degree in verses 1 and 2, David has many very concrete requests of God. And these requests reveal either great audacity in light of verses 1 through 6 and the deep and pervasive sinfulness of man, or they represent deep, deep assurance. Great audacity or deep assurance. For instance, just just look with me, even just starting from verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your abundant mercy, listen to this, blot out my transgressions. David, listen here. David is speaking to the Holy One. And he's saying to God, God, erase my sins from your book. That is audacious. I mean, if you want to talk about audacity in the highest sense for a deeply sinful man to to ask the Holy Creator, yeah, Lord, could you erase my sin from the book, please? Blot it out so you'll never see it again. And there's so many of these kind of statements. You look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. 
and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let these bones you've broken rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit. Don't cast me out of your presence. Don't take away your Holy Spirit from me. And he goes on and on. And he's got all of these incredibly expansive requests. He's asking the Holy One. Him, a sinner, who in verses 1 through 6 has laid out his sin before him. And I know, as you know, this this reveals deep assurance. It does not reveal pathetic audacity or, or presumptuousness on David's part to cry out, Have mercy, O God, according to your mercy, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. What these requests rather reveal, it reveals the generosity and the love of the one being asked. David is assured, he is confident that God is this merciful, that God is this loving, that God is full of this kind of mercy that covers over and in fact, yea, blots out sin from the book. This is the kind of God David is confident he comes before when he asks for these things. So they reflect not on his own goodness or perceived character, but rather on God. They reflect purely and only on the generosity of God. It's beautiful. You consider just for a moment, if I would have a friend, I I know he wants to help me. He told me that. My friend told me. Multiple times, he keeps reassuring me, hey, I really want to help you. I really want to help you. I love you. I care a lot about you. And then, you know, maybe later down the road, I finally come to a place in my need that I I finally pick up the phone. When I pick up the phone, what's in my mind is not, wow, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. Generally, people love me. I think I'm a good guy. I think my personal magnetism is going to draw out of this friend some goodness and blessing and help. Does any one of us in that instance call with that mentality? No. We're calling with full assurance that our dear friend simply wants to and has made it clear. He, couldn't, he could have written it on the sky. He was so urgent about it. I want to help you. I'm going to help you. Ask me. And when we ask, we go simply with the knowledge that our friend loves us. and They're inclined to us. And they will follow through with what we ask. Same thing here in Psalm 51 where David requests these amazingly expansive things. And yet with each, no matter how large the request seems, he is fully assured, hear this, that God is able to fulfill it. That God is able to blot out transgressions, literally, permanently, from the record. That God is able to do so. And so he asks, for instance, in verse 7, verse half, Purge me with the hyssop, and I shall be clean. There's no hesitation. And he is so confident that he says, with the hyssop, and by the way, the hyssop was a plant that they used in Levitical ceremonies to splatter the blood of the sacrifices. And it signified, basically, the application of forgiveness, the covering of God's forgiveness over sin. And they used this hyssop plant like a brush. You know, it's quite a, it's a, it's a bloody scene, but that's, that's what's in view here. And we know... What a bloody scene the Calvary of our Lord Jesus Christ was. So blood is a necessary part to what we're discussing here. To 
what we're talking about with, with forgiveness and mercy. So purge me with the hyssop, you know, and I shall be clean. And, and David's not just talking about ceremonial cleanliness here. He's talking about in the core of who he is. I shall be clean. It's almost as though he says, Lord, say the word. It will be done. You say mercy, I will be forgiven. He is so confident that if God but moves his hand, it shall, I shall be clean. That is the words of faith, brothers and sisters, that we look to the cross of Jesus and we say, I shall be clean. That is faith. Faith looks to the goodness and the character of the Holy One and recognizes if he put forth his own son, he will make us clean if we come to repent. As we come to him with repentance, he will surely forgive. He will be faithful and the Bible tells us he will be just to forgive. It would be unjust of God who put forth his son to die in our place. It would be unjust of God to not forgive a sin if we came confessing. That's how strongly God has staked his love and his mercy upon us. It's amazing. That is the gospel. Secondly, second half of verse 7, wash me and I shall be whiter than the snow. Just another example. And let me how appropriate that the Lord prepared this message with some wonderful flesh, fresh uh, snowfall. There's nothing like snowfall. As kids, we used to fight over who would be able to get to go outside first. Because if you went out after the first person, they already like tore up the snow. You know? Ever fight over that? I mean, my, my siblings, we'd get these bitter, bitter rivalries over that. No, it's my turn. Ah. And we would rush to get on our snowsuits and, and run out. And, 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 and basically the goal was to tear up <laughs> the backyard so that the other two couldn't have the joy of putting their footprints everywhere. And uh, we didn't do it too spitefully all the time. But I just remember some of those bickerings we would have. But fresh fallen snow has a way, I mean, it really is a picture God has given us in Scripture time and again. That sin is depicted as a crimson stain, right? The old hymn writer. Sin. Once a crimson stain, he has washed me white as snow. And that's what's in view here. The snow that has fallen is a beautiful picture. I mean, you think about the filth and the dirt underneath, even covering. You know, the space of ground, even in my backyard where I barely have any real grass growing, it's usually mud and muck and weeds. I mean, the snow makes everything beautiful. I mean, my, my backyard looks amazing right now. It does. And I didn't have to lift a finger. The snow just came down and blanketed it all. Smoothed out the rough terrain. It, it just makes everything beautiful and pure and white. And, and David is telling us that God's mercy cleanses us in a deeper white than we can even imagine. I cannot personally imagine something whiter than snow. Can you? Well, the Lord is telling us He will. He has through Jesus. So, these are some examples of the, really the finality and the extent of David's requests. These are expansive requests, and they are wonderful because they are, they are, they are it's a, such a gospel song. This is such a gospel song. David was a gospel man before his time, wasn't he? Here, by the inspiration of the Spirit, he is telling us, brothers and sisters, all the benefits of God the Son towards you and I. All the benefits that come through Jesus, through his cross, the forgiveness of our sin. What is it like? Well, it's like being washed whiter than snow. 
It's like being declared you are clean and being purged with the hyssop. David is such a gospel man. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. This is the gospel. Our sins are not leveled out on our heads. No, Jesus takes it. He washes us. But you may say to this, and I'll be brief here, you might say, Doug, you don't understand. I've been struggling with this sin for so long, and I've asked so many times for forgiveness. I've been asking for so long, and so often that I've now given up. I'm just not asking anymore. You might say that. And you might also say, there's no way that I'll be forgiven and delivered from a sin that is so dark and so deeply ingrained in me, in my habit. You might say these things, brother or sister, but let, I want to be frank with you in a moment. And I might say, I don't want to sound harsh, but I do want to be frank. If you are saying those kind of things, you are belittling the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe for a moment that your situation, your sin is so ingrained and that your sin has been asked for forgiveness so often, too much, that you have somehow overreached the boundaries of the mercy of God, you are belittling the cross of Jesus Christ. With your unbelief, with our unbelief. So let me urge you to repent on that first. Repent of unbelief. If you say in your heart, I am too sinful, I have done this too many times, it is too deeply ingrained in me. Repent of your unbelief first. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And then repent of that sin. Do we for a moment believe that? That God is put off by the size and the grip of any particular sin. Do we think that Jesus did not anticipate how sinful we can be in his death on the cross? And do we think for a moment his resurrection from the dead does not provide us with sufficient power to transform inside out to make real substantial changes towards the Lord away from things? Do we doubt that? Well, God, forgive us. Forgive me, Jesus, that I have doubted your love and the power of your forgiveness and mercy. Forgive me, Lord, that I am putting your gospel in a small place rather than revealing it to be the supernova that it is, the supernova of my change, the supernova of my forgiveness, the supernova of my being reconciled once and for all to God, and continually so. Jesus, give us mercy to believe your cross is all that it's declared to be. So repent of your unbelief and then repent of your sins. We're looking for this joy, this mercy that brings pardon so that we can, rep we can pursue repentance for the joy. And this brings us to our final point. Walk in joy, verses 13 through 19. Quickly, these verses... I mean, these really are the aftershocks of the cross. 
What you see laid out for you in chapters 51, verses 13 through 19, are the, it, it really is the, the ripple effect of the mercy of Jesus Christ. When a, when a sinner's hit with mercy, where does he go? Where does he go? Well, David lays it out for us very clearly. I love, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And what? And what? And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Here's the aftershock, the after effect of the mercy of God that comes through repentance. That comes through a repenting continually of our sins. And if you notice, it's very loud. It's quite vocal. If we are living the repenting life, brothers and sisters, we will be vocal about these very things that David is, is prescribing. First and foremost, teaching transgressors your ways. In other words, sharing the gospel. Our desire to share Jesus with others in so many ways reveals whether we're living a repenting life. If we lack desire or we are overcome with dullness when we think about unbelieving family members or, or friends or co-workers, and we don't do anything about it, that reveals first and foremost, am I walking out the repenting life? A life that repents before you, God. Am I walking out what, what David lays before us here in Psalm 51? The joy of salvation. Because if we're aware of our, depra our depravity, and if we're aware of the great mercy of God that washes us whiter than snow, then certainly we'll desire to, to teach transgressors in the way. We'll reach out to the lost. We'll pray for their salvation. We'll long to see them too covered by the blood of Jesus, forgiven of every sin. Walking in the light and knowing the joy that only comes through the Lord Jesus. So, are you preaching the gospel? Are you? Secondly, verse 14 and 15 talk about this praise. Our tongues will sing aloud of the righteousness of God. There's something about praise that is always attached to the, the cross. Always. For the sinner who has been forgiven much loves much. And if we love Christ much, we're going to sing very loudly to him. And I speak especially to the men. Fathers, husbands, do you sing loudly? Do you sing aloud of God's righteousness for your family to hear? doesn't mean you have a great voice. You probably don't. Most of us don't, right? We're not opera singers. We're worshipers. The Lord calls for you to sing loudly. Let your boys and your girls, let your wife, let your other single friends hear you singing loudly of Jesus and what he's done for you. You can be an example to one another in that way. And if we're feeling dull or distanced from praise, we can pray just like David did. Oh, Lord, open my lips, and I will declare your praise. Now, I am running out of time, but we're running right for the end here, going for the jugular. What is this repenting life? What is this repenting life? I think often we, we can cast repentance as a once-and-done ordeal, as though it's a moment-by-moment -moment transaction that happens. Yes, it is that. But it's not just that. And that's what I think David is getting at here, is this picture of what is a joy, what, what, what brings us from lament to joy continually throughout life? Well, it's living repentance as he shows it. 
in Psalm 51. I think there are uh, so many quotes that, that get at this. One of my favorites is this from Thomas Watson. He says, There is an opinion that repentance will take away our joy, but that is a mistake. It does not crucify but clarify our joy and takes our joys away from the full, fulsome waste of sin. Repentance does not take away a Christian's music, but raises it a note higher. Raises it a note higher and makes it sweeter. So I'm going to appeal to us all in conclusion. Do we desire to sing with our lives? Do we desire the joy that Jesus promises? Do we want to live a life that is worthy of him? Well, then we must be repenting. We must. We should. We will. For this is the path that God has chosen for us. It's the path of our sanctification, is it not? That we see things that we're doing that are wrong, that are idolatrous. We turn from them to God. And, but we're always prone to wander. So we have to keep washing, rinsing, and repeating. We have to keep going back. And that is rehearsing the gospel day by day. That is living the repenting life. And that's what the Lord wants to hold before us. It's a crown jewel, brothers and sisters. It will sweeten our music. It will raise it a note higher. It is not whips. It is not sackcloth and ashes. It is a joy of salvation. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, where do you need to repent? What areas of your life is God showing you or has shown you that you're fearful of bringing to the light before him and before other believers? And that is also in view here. Verses 18 19 talk about the, 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 the people of Zion. talks about the corporate gathering. We're here for each other. It's not just about David and God his personal salvation or his personal forgiveness and repentance, it also has to do with the church and the benefiting of one another. We're here to help one another, to confess our sins to each other so that we can understand and realize the mercy of God and truly live the repenting life. So where do you need to repent this morning? I'll have Jeremy and the team come up. We'll close with worship as well. I would, I would urge you, where you need to repent, this is something to bring before the Lord personally right? Against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. Start by going to God. And as you go to him, pour out your heart. Even use David's words. Even use David's words as your own. Have mercy, O God, on me, a sinner. And may the Lord bless you with joy today. May the Lord show you his mercy and favor that all comes through Jesus. What a glorious gospel. What a wonderful Savior. Amen. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.